Welcome to Pollock and Thurston. I am John Pollock, and he is Brandon Thurston, as we are now living in the era of TKO Group Holdings, with the merger completed, several executives doing the media rounds, foregoing us, and here is Brandon and I to talk about all of the uh, big breakdown of this merger, what it means, and information that we have gotten over the past 24 hours, because Boy, has TKO spared no expense with their mailing list functionality. It is working. I can guarantee you it works. And small bit of advice, the green font on white, not a fan. Not a fan. It's a lime green, too. It's not like dark green. It's not forest green. Lime green. The green font can just be discarded, okay? Not cutting edge, not eye-catching. It's an eyesore, and I would just happily take the black text. Let's just keep it traditional. You know, if you, if you like look at your email, you know how like it'll group together multiple messages from the same oh. address. I had something like 30, 33 from Easily. one, 27 from the WB one. These are notifications about, you know, filings and stuff. Yeah. There was no, uh, there was definitely not a uh, easing into things. Um, plenty of homework on the first day of TKO from a 251 page 8K filing among many, many SEC documents that uh, if you look close enough, you realize uh, Vince McMahon, very profitable day for the man. But uh, let's talk a bit about just kind of the overall picture here for those that sort of are just uh, following this at a, uh, at a at a cursory level. But essentially, this company now takes form where Endeavor has 51% of this new company and WWE shareholders holding on to 49%, which would have been a lot smaller of a percentage if not for Vince McMahon, who had the shareholders front of mind during these negotiations and his presence alone uh, bumped those percentage points up several at the request of Ari Emanuel, who is willing to give him 49% as long as Vince McMahon is part of the deal. And here right. he is. That's that's what's in the, in the filing that gives the narrative of how this deal came together. Was It was 43% for WWE, but, but then... Uh, after, you know, he, he twisted Vince's arm and said, all right, if, if you stay, though, I'll give you a 49. So, um, but yes, this morning, uh, there's a, a press release that went out about a $3.86 dividend per share. So if you own one share of TKO, you get $3.86. Or if you're Vince McMahon and you own more than 28 million shares of TKO, you get something like $100 million just for the closure of this transaction, a one-time dividend payment. Um, there will, I'm guessing there will be a quarterly dividend that they have, that the board has to make a decision about later. There's a, a lot to this um, uh, among the, the release uh, stating that TKO will rely on Endeavor's expertise in domestic and international media rights, ticket sales, and yield optimization, event operations, global partnerships, licensing, and premium hospitality to drive revenue growth. And Ari Emanuel will be the head of this TKO company with Vince McMahon in the spot of executive chairman, Mark Shapiro, president and COO of TKO. Dana White has now got a title change. He has gone from UFC yes. president to UFC CEO, which we, we, we have a clip later on. But Dana White, very busy over the last couple of days. He went from Sydney, Australia to New York on Tuesday morning for the ringing of the opening bell to Vegas on Tuesday night for the contender series and then did a press conference with the media. And his summary was, this is great for the sport. My title, lateral move. And then also shared his thoughts on um, his uh, 
uh, legal t- uh, team, or at least uh, Lawrence Epstein's comment to uh, ESPN, but we'll get to that later. Nick Khan, WWE president, and uh, that rounds out. And we also have the identity of the mystery uh, board member, Peter yes. Peter Bino. I hope Bino. I pronounce Bino. Yes. That's what I'm going with. That's uh, correct. A senior advisor at DLA Piper. Not to a be confused firm. with uh, Piper's Pit or the exterminus or the exterminator, whatever the hell Shayna Baszler was calling her new finisher. Um, but there, Peter Bino is the, uh, makes up the 11 member board of directors that also includes Vince McMahon, Ari Emanuel, Mark Shapiro, Steve Coonan, a returning champion and, uh, and other, uh, Jonathan Kraft, uh, of the Kraft group and the New England Patriots. Those are some of the names on this 11 member board. Yeah. So five of them have been appointed by Vince slash WWE, really Vince. Um, and six of them are appointed by Endeavor. So Peter Bino was what I know. Yeah. Peter CB Bino is the latest one. He was the one. He's taking the one vacant seat that we didn't know who, who it was, who was going to fill it. Um, I, I learned that he is, he is the first black owner of a major sports fran- franchise along with a, another owner who he, he worked with to acquire the um, Denver Nuggets in 1989. So yes, and a, and a senior advisor of, what is it? The DLA like, Piper. DLA Piper law firm. And so Vince McMahon, why don't you explain, Brandon, how has his uh, control of the company changed now that they have flipped over from WWE to TKO? What is his stock situation in TKO? So he still owns the same number of shares that have ba- basically the same amount of value. It, it fluctuates based on what the, the stock price is. But up until yesterday, Vince McMahon has been in full control of WWE, WF, Titan Sports, whatever you want to call it through the years. He has been fully in control of that. He has... He has controlled the majority of the votes. Um, and that's how he was able to force his way back into the company uh, at the very beginning of this year. Um, he has special founder stock like Mark Zuckerberg does for Meta. And this is fairly widespread uh, among publicly traded companies that the founder gets 10 times the votes of everybody else per share. So he owned like a third of the stock, really. But each one of his votes counts 10 times more uh, when it comes to voting power. Uh, that has been the case throughout WWE's publicly traded history. He sold a little bit of it down. But but anyway, that all ended yesterday. He now owns about 16% of the, the total TKO company, which is just WWE and UFC. He owns 16% of it, and he owns 16% of the votes. Um, he is the executive chairman. He has an employment agreement that carries over here, uh, but he is no longer able to to whimsically do what he wants like he did at the beginning of this year by forcing his way back into the company by something called written consent. But all all in, like, yes, he he doesn't have the pretty much untouchable power he did in WWE. But you have to look at this from a viewpoint that if we were to forecast this 12 months out from a year ago of where Vince McMahon would land, he has to be considered among the big winners of this entire situation, how it was played, how he comes out of it. And, you know, him and Mark Shapiro remembers that. Yeah. It's, it's uh, a fleeting memory. Um, that the scandal of 2022, but I pay for a lot of NDAs that way. That's how they, they typically work. And I'd say, you know, I, I wouldn't say as severe a scandal, but Dana White at the beginning of this year. And here are these two guys like ringing open the, the New York stock exchange bell. I mean, uh, there's certainly something to be said there for just a, a a level of power and the fact that they mitigated the storm and they have come out of it 
unchecked when it comes to um, th- that ability. Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing in culture, right? Where we're, you know, in the last several years, we're certainly getting into a place in culture where people are being more scrutinized for their behavior and, and are suffering career consequences because of it. Um, that has not really, well, it it's sort of was the case. You certainly pressured into quote unquote retiring or whatever he did. He truly resigned in, in whatever, however you want to phrase it in July, 2022. Um, but he, and he was out of the picture for several months, something like seven months and, and forced his way back in. Um, it's sort of, uh, I don't want to say forgotten story, but it's, it's, uh, I'd say it's almost a forgotten story, Brandon. It's almost like it's the paragraph in some of these stories on Tuesday that it was like the requisite paragraph you have to put in there. Like Vince McMahon underwent uh, several scandals uh, previously and move on. Like it's we'll put it in there. But this was not something that I I would say it's it's about as close as forgotten. And the Dana White story, 100 percent forgotten, 100 percent. Right. Um and I don't know what it says about the, the maybe the culture in general, the culture surrounding these two companies in particular, and and um, you know, but it but is a pretty minor minor memory now that uh, Vince McMahon has been accused something like seven by seven different women of various kinds of sexual misconduct, and has paid many millions of dollars to to pay for their silence. Um, but he's he's a big winner here, and today he's getting a hundred and ten million dollar uh, one time dividend. Um, I mean, it's for something that he owns, so it's not like a, it, it's a um, you know, something that's really at anybody's discretion. Well, I guess it is those, they, it could have been less, right? It could have been less than $3 and 86 cents per share. Um, but he's, you know, still very much in power in WWE. We could, you know, speculate about how truly involved he is, but, uh, he's, he's still very much there and very much collecting lots and lots and lots of money for it. And even if you're the person that is not putting the scandal as something that is, uh, going to, uh, affect your your thoughts or the, this deal it's not as though it's completely in the background either as they disclosed at the beginning of august vince mcmahon was subpoenaed and the idea of an indictment is not out of the question of of a grand jury indictment that could come out of this so it's not as though this is just in the clear like dana white for better or worse it's in the rearview mirror and i don't see any fallout from what happened at the beginning of the year for Vince McMahon, it is still something that there is a, an ongoing investigation into. Right. And I think I've said before, it, it feels like one, one of the mo- most underreported stories out there is that I'm not sure that Vince McMahon couldn't be indicted any day now um, because of pro- probably not because of, you know, uh, sexual assault allegations or anything like that. But but the NDAs that were related to these sexual misconduct allegations um, that are in the millions. Now it's going over the course of like 2005 to 2022. So that's a lot of years and you're spreading about $19 million over the course of those years. And W has said in their filings that that's over the course of that many years, it's not a material amount of money um, to, to the, to the size of the company, which basically means, look, it didn't really change the value. It's not like people didn't know the true value of the company WWE when all this was going on. Um, but nonetheless, we got it disclosed in the last earnings call um, that on July 17th of this year, there was a search uh, and a subpoena executed. Um, I guess that means a search of his home. Um, and, you know, we, we know that the vast majority of grand juries, if he's the subject of, of the grand jury's investigation, the vast majority of grand juries indict. So uh, no charges have been filed at this point. We should also mention we're going to be joined a little later on by uh, Patrick Oje of the Fight 
business podcast. He will be uh, jumping on with us. We'll get his reaction to the merger and looking at, at both sides, the pro wrestling side and kind of the MMA business that, that he covers pretty extensively on top of it. But let's transition over to some of the media appearances that we saw on Tuesday. Uh, primarily Nick Khan, who did an interview with ESPN. He also did an interview with the Bill Simmons podcast. And then Mark Shapiro, who was on The Town with Matthew Bellany. And there was a fair amount of insight that you got out of this. We can start with the Bill Simmons podcast. And this is maybe the most uh, in-depth pro wrestling discussion I got out of Nick Khan. This is pro wrestling fan Nick Khan. Yeah, with an incredible amount. Like I'm not thinking for a second he lived through all of this history and was following uh, Andrew Martin's career and such, but he to me has a high level of retention and has studied the history of this company that he is like he went down uh you know years ago storylines was instantly on top of this this Andrew Martin test gaff of Bill Simmons who was not aware that he had passed away in 2009, but I mean you just hear someone that is incredibly you know media savvy of the content he is talking about and that this guy has done his homework of like i don't think for a second this man was following pro wrestling all of these years but has done his he was an usher at wrestlemania 9 famously yes i mean on on the george barrio scale he he breaks that scale yeah he's he's no uh ricky the steamboat dragon that's for sure um or or sean rollins uh, but yeah, it, it's so that the context is that Bill Simmons made a joke about how maybe test could come back and, you know, rekindle his marriage with Stephanie, which is the angle from like 1999. And, and Nick Khan knew that Andrew Martin test had passed away a number of years ago. Instantly, um, like no pausing, like instantly knew, knew this, which I, I don't know how many executives, executives that would, um, maybe even know who test was. If you're someone that's come along in this company in the last 10 years, right. it's not like this is some big character that is in WWE history, uh, focused upon. Right. Big attitude era fan though. Who, who knows? Um, but I thought there was a lot of, not, not just that, but there was a lot of wrestling, uh, t- talking about getting over and, and how stars get over. There's a lot of interesting, you know, um, talk of, of how stars are made and how stars get over in, in this, in this conversation that was more, more, in, in, in the Nate, in the realm of like creative than I've ever heard him talk yet. Um, also got in his, his comment that LA Knight is the first LA Knight. That's the, you know, if he's maybe parsing verbs from adjectives, that was maybe a, a subtle <laughs> reference to a certain WWE Hall of Famer. Yes. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting that you heard him. Yeah. Much more of a focus on creative that he's always said, like, that's not his department, right. but whether that is, a closer day-to-day working relationship with Paul Levesque, seeing the direct impact over this past year that it's had on business and him understanding what is working, what doesn't work. Clearly there is, I, I think a deeper understanding from Nick Khan on an area of the business that he would have been uh, the least versed on when he came to this company three years ago. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously I don't think he's deeply involved in creative, but I think it's, it's, it's nice to hear that the top executive in the company, unlike, you know, a lot of conversations that I felt we've had in the past where it was just about the nuts and bolts of the business and not really delving into the importance that stars have to, uh, on, the, on the company. Um, but not to say that that was the only thing they talked about. They talked about a lot else, but it was, um, it's, it's good to have someone who feels like an authentic wrestling fan and, and really knows the product and a little bit of the history. Let's hear from uh, Nick Khan, who also spoke with Bill Simmons about the potential of an all-star weekend with this merged company. But everyone envisions, 
is can you set up an all-star TKO weekend where if SmackDown goes on Friday and the UFC goes on Saturday with the pay-per-view and WWE goes with a premium live event on Sunday, can you do that from the same city? Certainly a lot of cost efficiencies there in terms of production, but a lot of revenue efficiencies in terms of upside, we think there as well. Music to Tony Khan's ear. You're saying WWE premium live events on Sundays. All for it. Um, but this idea, and I have seen from both sides, a lot of uh, fans that have interpreted when they're seeing this crossover, this idea of like combined cards or that kind of crossover, which I don't think is what they are stating. It is more so oh, this no, idea I, of pairing events. That. People oh. are interpreting it. This is going to be like Ultimate Crush 2003, where you've got like some MMA fights and some pro wrestling matches. I think, and you can tell from the tone of Dana White that it is like he understands the business reality of this, but I do not think he wants his brand to be confused with professional wrestling. And this is going to force him to have to compromise that thought because there is going to be synergy between the two. But I think he wants a clear line between the two. And this, you know, they've had their gambling controversies. They have had to fight that stigma for a long time of we are not professional wrestling. And that is kind of a hard line stance that I detect from Dana White. And to be clear, I would be shocked if anyone in TKO is seriously considering what I just said. I mean, you know, pro wrestling matches on the same card as UFC fights. No. Um, yeah. Just, just I mean, the fact you're in regulated states. I mean, the idea of doing yes. this would be, yes. and I think it would greatly upset a lot of fans. And it's something I do agree with Dana White on in the sense that, um, Lawrence Epstein spoke to ESPN stating our goal is for every WWE fan to be a UFC fan and for every UFC fan to be a WWE fan. And before we go further, did you hear Dana White's reaction to that quote? No, I didn't. What did he say? Let's get Brandon's reaction as well. This was Tuesday night after the contender audio series. of this? Yes. Epstein, uh, Lawrence said something to ESPN today. He said, where we want to get is where every UFC fan is a WWE fan and every WWE fan is a UFC fan. Do you see similarities in the fan base and how achievable is that goal? Lawrence, I love you. One of the dumbest statements of all time. Yeah, I don't know why he said that. Um, I don't even know what to say to that. No, there's no, there's some crossover. Some people like WWE, some people like UF, some people like both. There, I don't think there's ever going to be a day where we turn every UFC fan into a WWE fan or every WWE fan. What, what's beautiful about the synergy between these two fan bases is they are very completely opposite. You know, there's very little crossover. And, uh, again, I, maybe he was misquoted. I hope that's the case. Uh, cause I could not disagree with him more. So day one, everyone on message for the, the same mission statement of this energy. I don't disagree with Dana White. I think this, I like there is very different makeups of this audience. It's very different than a 2008, 2009 period when you, I would say, saw the peak of the crossover through a Brock Lesnar through and just um overall, just more interest back and forth. Today, I see two very different audiences and two very different companies. One in the WWE sense that has been as apolitical as a company can be staying, staying away from politics aside from a Saudi Arabian deal. And then a UFC company that through the pandemic, they came out as 
very much the, this is the place where you can say whatever you want. Dana White has very much attached himself to major Republican figures. Very different. And the audience, I think, by and large, has reflected those ideologies too. I, I just see them as very different fan bases. And you can sense that just in some of the reaction to this merger. I mean, I didn't see it, but you, you were reporting on it, right? There were, there were slurs being thrown around at the most recent UFC event. On right? Saturday. Yeah. And um, he said Trump at a, at a UFC event not that Trump long ago. Trump has been right? at multiple. I mean, Dana White has spoken at the RNC convention. I mean, there is, yeah. you know, it's like they, they trumpet the, the political aspect of, of that. And, and I would say from my impression online, and, and I'm sure online is a, is an extreme impression of, of the reality, but on, online, I would say these are very different fan cultures, um, wrestling and, and UFC. And we can say what we want about the, the origin of, of MMA. It's absolutely tied to, to pro wrestling, but as those years have gone on, uh, and I think especially as UFC has gotten more popular, those, those two fandoms have gone in, in totally different directions. But the idea of, you know, positioning here is a group of events that we can shop to different municipalities around the world. That is a very advantageous option of the idea that not only can we bring you a WWE premium live event, but a UFC pay-per-view on top of it. Now we're talking about sizable site fee site fees. And it would be to their benefit that you can argue we have distinct audiences that will will travel to these events, that there is not the crossover that you're drawing the same people on two nights. And I, I don't think that would be the case. But obviously, that's a huge initiative on their part. And I would imagine this is going to be experimented multiple times over the years to come. Yeah, I, I think the financially, the big opportunities here are the enormous layoffs that are probably coming very soon, unfortunately, for W employees. That's going to allow TKO to save a lot of money because they'll, they'll com- just combine the services of Endeavor and UFC and WWE um, international media rights deals. Uh, some of these deals will be able to be dealt together. Perhaps even later on, the some of the domestic deals will be able to be dealt together. Not the not the ones coming up soon for WWE, but but uh, later than that. Uh, and uh, subsidies from governments, like you said, perhaps a, a, a wrestling show on a Saturday. A UFC event on a Sunday or vice versa and ads and sponsorships that could be dealt together. There was also a lot of questions thrown their way about you know, pairing up the, whether it be the television rights deals, which are a year apart when the UFC is up with ESPN in 2025. But then you also have the WWE uh, network deal with, with Peacock and the idea of at some point, being able to shop this around and combine it as a service or making short-term deals so that, you know, we get the, the, the term of the year coterminous for some of these agreements to uh, come up uh, together. That was thrown their way. Obviously they're not being too definitive on too much regarding day one. It seems the key is us getting this thing up and running and hitting this, uh, these quote unquote uh, cost synergies that, seem to be in the neighborhood of 50 to $100 million that they suggest are going to be on the higher end of that. And that, that's a big number to reach to. And that is going to mean some bloodshed, unfortunately, that is going to be felt probably on, on both sides. Like this is not going to be, um, I think, scaled just towards one over the other. In terms of employees? Yes. I, I would think it's mostly going to be WWE though, right? Because UFC has already gone through this to an extent, right? With Within with being acquired by Endeavor and a lot of their services being taken over by Endeavor. Any, any idea how many UFC employees there are 
because the WWE has like 800. As I don't, I, I don't think they're as big as that. Uh, but I, I would have to double check on like what the what the figure would be. Anecdotally, just you know, scrolling through LinkedIn, I feel like I've seen a lot of now former WWE employees announce that they're working for such and such now. Um, so maybe a lot of them have sort of you know been been preemptive and proactive of this. Um, but yeah, I. I think there's going to be maybe, I mean, I don't know when, but I would expect it to be fairly soon in the next, you know, next week or so. I would imagine at least some, some round of, of layoffs beginning. And that also adds to the fact that uh, an email was sent out in the WWE on Wednesday morning from Nick Khan alerting everybody that its president and CFO, Frank Riddick III, will be exiting WWE at the end of the month, not sticking around for war games and will be uh, moving on. So, uh, Unknown what uh, whether this was just the merger was coming and he was seeing his exit on the way out, but he would have been part of this this dividend and also getting a bonus based on the sale as well. So Frank Werdick is leaving with a uh, he has cashed out. Yeah, unknown if uh, maybe this was about a dispute about whether there's going to be a war games. There's no no confirmation yet that there's going to be a war games on Survivor Series uh, in Chicago, right? Um, but I think it's not that surprising, you know, in, in all the, um, the slides and disclosures we've seen about who's going to be in what position in this company, in this DKO, he was not listed. And he's somebody who, you know, sort of, he was, he's been a, a board member for many long many times, um, probably like more than 10 years or something like that. But, he, and he's served as interim CFO when Christina Salen was let go. Uh, and then he became permanent. Is he not the interim not president? Sorry. Was he the interim president when Barrios and Wilson left You're before right. Nick Khan came? You're right. He he was the in, yeah he was the interim president, and then he and then when Nick Khan came in and Christina Salen came in, he went back to the board. But then when Christina Salen was let go, he took her spot, leave on a permanent basis. So he's kind of been part time, but then full time permanently. So not that surprising that you know he's. He's out of the picture here. I did see him in the clip, though. He was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, not with everybody ringing the bell, but he was he was down on the floor applauding. Yeah, it's certainly a future T-shirt sale with uh, all the uh, the power brokers up there ringing the bell on uh, on Tuesday morning. Um, did you want to hear from uh, Mark Shapiro? He spoke on the town. Uh, this is on the WWE's forthcoming rights and how optimistic Mark Shapiro is. Yeah. WWE has two deals: SmackDown at Fox and Raw, which is the big winner, the big jewel, which is at NBC. Both of those are up at the end of October next year. But we're in discussions now with multiple platforms, both linear and digital. And I would tell you I'm cautiously optimistic about that and encouraged by those conversations. So feeling good about WWE, feeling good that we're going to be in line with market expectations, which has us around a 1.4, 1.5 increase. We're feeling good about where we stand there. And by the way, we have a lot of time. Let's let some things play out with regard to the strikes and content contraction. I, I felt that that was just a, a burial of the expectations for SmackDown, where he's referring to uh, Raw as the big winner, the big jewel, when Raw is getting $265 million a year, average annual value, SmackDown's getting 205 Not only are those pretty similar values, but SmackDown is shorter. It's two hours, which is raw, which is three hours. So on a per hour basis, SmackDown is the more expensive property. Um, and as we know, it's, it's, everybody feels pretty confident that NBCU is going to keep raw. Um, and Fox is probably not going to renew SmackDown. Um, and he goes out there and says 1.4 to 1.5, insinuating that that's what the market 
believes. And maybe the, since the stock price has been affected, maybe they do. But up to this point, everything that I've seen in equity analyst reports has been, you know, 1.5, 1.8. So he, I think, you know, that, that's probably just reflective of what he knows is that that's, that's sort of how the interest is going for SmackDown and probably not Fox renewing it. And that's probably reflective of the kinds of offers that they're getting or the kinds of conversations that they're having right now with probably Amazon and Disney. Yeah, those appear to be the two front runners. Brandon Ross has been very strong on those and coincidences always happen during these negotiations. And wouldn't you know it that uh, Paul Levesque and Jeff Bezos happen to have tickets right by each other during New York Fashion Week. I mean, just the odds of that happening during this crucial uh, time and then all these people picking up on it and establishing this connection. I mean, that's like, imagine just showing up and you're next to Jeff Bezos. Happens to me several times <laughs> I've ended up next to the world's richest oh. man at a tennis event. They, they just fashion. Why, why do why do people have to speculate? They they just love fashion. You know, you've seen Jeff Bezos in his cowboy hat and his spacesuit, and Triple H. You know, every time he was at WrestleMania, he was adorned in you know fashion icon. costumes. Yeah, so I I, I think uh, too early to speculate. Well. We uh, we love to speculate, and we're going to welcome in a man who can uh, join in on the speculation. You know him as the host of the Fight Business Podcast. Patrick Oje is with us as the TKO era has begun. Uh, Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So, I mean, we've had, you know, a, a day to digest a lot of uh, media opportunities where Nick Khan has been speaking, Mark Shapiro has been speaking. What are some of your just big picture takeaways of what you see this reality of these two companies coming together and what the short-term goals are and what you could see being the, the, the end game or at least longer term goals. Yeah. So, um, th this has gone off pretty much without a hitch from what I've seen. Um, and I heard you guys a little bit as I was driving back. So I, I heard you've gone through a lot of, a lot of the discussion. Um, but in terms of, you know, short term and, and what this looks like, I think, you know, Mark Shapiro and, and Ari Emanuel's comments during that CNBC in, interview were pretty spot on where the synergies here are all about logistics. They're all about getting the site fees ramped up. Um, it's not going to be, uh, the, the type of, you know, mixed events where you've got a lot of crossover there. I think they want some crossover, right? If, if you're going to, you like both products, they of course want you to go to a WWE event on Sunday after you've gone to a UFC fight night. Maybe they'll, do ticket deals at most. I think that's probably the biggest thing I could see from, from that standpoint, but short term, this is really about the, the synergies with selling rights together for media selling the, Hey, let's get the site fee all together. It will boom your uh, economic tourism, right? They'll go and they'll do a whole spiel about you should pay us X amount of money to have us come bring both WWE and UFC here. Um, it, it's, it's much more behind the scenes. It's not what I've seen a lot online as well of people saying like, Oh, you're going to have, you know, a, a ultimate fighter series of wrestlers. That's possible, but I just don't think it's gonna, you know, be a huge thing. Um, I, I would say short term, the biggest crossover I, I do expect that will come out of this is I imagine with UFC 300 coming up, that being such a big event, um, depending on how the heavyweight title fight goes on UFC 295, I wouldn't be shocked to see a Brock Lesnar return uh, for the belt or something of that regard, right? That's, that's something that I could easily see them trying to get a good big win 
after the merger, that type of thing. But that's the only short term, you know, area there. Long term, uh, this is a lot about Endeavor protecting itself, right? Um, a huge part of this was to get rid of their debt. If, if you notice, TKO took on $2.7 billion of debt from Endeavor and the UFC. That's over half of the debt that Endeavor has had. Their most recent filings and the filings that came out here, uh, their biggest expense increase in the first six months of this year was that their interest on debt rose over 100% because 40% of Endeavor's debt is variable. So as you know, you have these continued hate or uh, interest hike rates on a macro level, that's been starting to eat away at Endeavor's margins. Um, you've obviously got the antitrust lawsuit uh, that's been you know going on with the UFC, finally getting some movement there. Uh, and, and all of the fun controversies that come with the UFC fighter pay, I, uh, you know, this past event, couple of fun, fun homophobia going on. <laughs> and so, uh, with, with that regard, this is a way for them to kind of hedge their bets too and, and to kind of delever. A, a big thing that stood out to me was Mark Shapiro saying on that CNBC interview that, you know, when they started, they were eight times levered. Now they're under three. That's huge for Endeavor because that's really been their big, you know, elephant in the room when Which trying business to get... speak for debt, right? Yes. Yes. That is business speak yeah. for debt. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, so this is a way for through that reverse Morris trust, they get to push over half of their debt down to TKO and Endeavor comes out of this looking great because they're still getting 51% of the revenues of TKO. Right. And they're not nearly as in debt as they were before. So you you might know better than me. So what wasn't this wasn't it the case that they couldn't do a reverse Morse trust because something about the timing they had not owned UFC long enough in its entirety to, to within the time limit but did it turn out to not, to not be the case? So that didn't that didn't turn out to be the case from what I understand. It, I mean, basically they should still be able to pull pull it off through an RMT despite not because they owned 51% of it beforehand, before they purchased it outright, there's some overlap there that has allowed them to, from my understanding, has allowed them to successfully go through with this. Uh, don't take my word as gospel for that. But yes, I know there was a lot of back and forth about that. But I must, yeah. I, as far as I know, it's still an RMT. Because if my memory is right, I think it was Nick Khan who appeared on, on the Light Shed podcast in an interview saying that it was not an RMT, but... I mean, he's not an accountant. He may not have not have been completely accurate. Uh, but uh, but yeah. So then that has to do with whether or not the debt can be pushed over to TKO. Right. Yes. If, if you are not doing a reverse Morris trust, then the debt that's being pushed down, you can still transfer some of it, but not nearly as much, and you can't get the cash dividend back to Endeavor as well. From everything I've seen, it. I mean. It, it, at this point, because so much of the debt was financed to the UFC anyway, you're able to offload the biggest part of it, right? That 2.7 billion. But um, from everything I'm, I've seen, they still should be able to do an RMT if if they can't. The the biggest implication I would say at this point would be that the transaction won't be tax free. That's the other big thing for RMT, right? Is you get to do this, you push your debt down, get the cash back. And then it's also a tax-free transaction as long as you meet certain criteria um, for a set amount of years, I believe it's two years. And so if they can't do an RMT, that's really what's going to hurt them is just they'll pay some more taxes. But the fact they're still, no matter what, they should still be able to offload the UFC specific debt, which was the majority of the debt Endeavor had. 
So either way, they're they're happy because that was a, a bigger concern for them as time and time went on with these rate hikes that don't seem like they're going down anytime soon. Are you surprised at all at the lack of attention that the the antitrust lawsuit has received, especially among these bigger outlets, especially when you compare it to how big the reaction was to the PFL investment a few weeks ago? Yes. Um, you know, it's one of those things where uh, the market and, and especially the reactions to the market, especially, especially the past couple of years, it's about sensationalism a lot of times. Um, you know, the PFL investment is significant, but the antitrust lawsuit, I think, is is the real, you know, Achilles heel right now, where if the injunctive relief is granted, if you actually have that go to trial, I know they've appealed right now, Zufa just filed a um, reply to the plaintiff's brief to deny an appeal. They're trying to essentially say, look, we need this to be appealed. The Chamber of Commerce, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, wrote a letter in support of the appeal, which is big. Um, so my guess is it will go to appeal. But if not, I mean, a trial date has been set for April, which is very, very fast. I think part of why it hasn't got as much attention is this has been going on forever. I mean, 2015, I think, is when this first started. And we had a conference call right around COVID saying that from the judge, okay, we're going to get class certification out of the way and made all the indications he was going to do it very shortly. I believe he said next Monday on the call. Uh, and then three years went by and we didn't hear a peep. And so now that it's coming back, I think people are still just expecting it to drag out and that's part of it. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's moved now at kind of a breakneck pace from being extremely slow to, if this appeal isn't granted, trial starts in you know under six months, which is a very big deal because the UFC will try to settle, but any change to contract status is really the the issue here. Um, if if PFL has all the money in the world, if Surge, the investment fund, gives PFL money just carte blanche to go after fighters, that's great, but they won't be able to get most of the stars based on the way the contracts are written now. Mm-hmm. And, and so the 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 big risk here seems to be the anti let's let's say between the two things that have the one thing that has not moved the stock and the one thing that has the the idea that the PFL and maybe it even you know merges with uh Bellator or something it, that becomes a competitor to the UFC that that seems like a of if nothing else a much more long-term risk versus the more immediate risk of of antitrust lawsuit yes yeah i mean even if the contracts don't change, right? And and all indications are PFL is going to acquire Bellator. It's just a matter of time. Um, in terms of the risk long-term, yes, it could be an issue where if you have enough money, right, as contracts start to come up or as new stars are, are brought in, you might be able to slowly chip away at the UFC's brand dominance. But uh, short-term, I mean, it's really... It's the antitrust lawsuit where we've seen in boxing and other combat sports, right? Um, I forget the specific case, but I believe there was a, a case where an injunctive relief was that all contract, you know, lengths and, you know, non-compete clauses were instantly voided where anyone now could just, you know, after this ruling, they basically go sign with whoever. If something like that happens in the UFC, then you're looking at a major issue where UFC is going to have to pony up the money to keep a lot of their champions. I think they'd rather do that than let PFL, 
you know, poach all of them. But even in all those scenarios, long-term, maybe. But it, it's similar to AEW and WWE, right? If AEW got you know, more and more of, of WWE's bigger stars, that's going to chip away at them. But WWE is still this huge brand behemoth. It's not like it's going away overnight, even if it lost some of its top guys. Yeah, and Mark Shapiro seemed to be spinning it on CNBC as, look, we're, we're so profitable. We can afford it, if, if, even if it does happen. Yeah, he definitely, I took note of that where he said, you know, we are in, are able to, you know, deal with any anticipated increase in fighter uh, compensation, which they are, they're, they're ridiculously profitable. They'll be fine in that regard, but their margins will be tighter. I did not believe him when he said, Oh, we can deal, uh, you know, with more fighter compensation and our margins will still grow possibly. But I mean, I, I, that seemed like a little bit of a stretch, honestly. It's one of the like most attractive things about these companies and Endeavor sees it firsthand from their talent agency side that is marred by the ongoing strike. And yet here are these two businesses. You're telling me there's no uh, labor representation that we have to deal with and we can pay them this percentage and keep it at that rate. What, what a gift. It's one of the, to me, like shining examples of why these companies are so attractive to an Endeavor. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, in, in, Endeavor's presentation when they first pitched to buy the UFC and they got their partners uh, KKR and Silver Lake on board in their pitch deck, their biggest you know cost reduction measure was you know we're going to cap fighter compensation at twenty percent or lower and it's not a risk we don't have to worry about it we're, we'll be able to kind of work the market. There's a huge um, th- there's a huge dynamic behind the scenes too with managers right. There are several very powerful fighter managers in the background who have very good relationships with the UFC and who are supposed to negotiate on the fighter's behalf. And through the lawsuit, we've seen some of these emails where, you know, the UFC essentially uses a formulaic methodology in paying their fighters. After so many fights, if you've won, we bump you up a certain level and they have tiers. And that's what they did for a long, long time. If you're a star or you can actually move the needle through their social media metrics and merchandise and things like that, of course, you can get a better deal. But, you know, mostly it's you win this many fights, you bump up to this level, this X amount of fights, this level, you fight for a title, you get this compensation, this pay-per-view point percentage, et cetera. And so that is another thing that just helps, you know, endeavor look at this investment and say this is extremely attractive we we don't have to worry about fighters you know unionizing which has failed multiple times the biggest thing we have to worry about is the antitrust lawsuit and the possible introduction of the ali act expansion which through the ufc's political ties you know coincidentally went away when you know trump who is a friend of Dana White took office. I don't think that's necessarily a coincidence, right? Um, but that's part of of why Endeavor wanted to get in this business in the first place. And I would think to a you know a, a typical hardcore fan of WWE or even uh, UFC, I think they would look at this situation and say, look, you've got you know UFC fighters who are clearly misclassified as independent contractors while being treated as employees not represented by a union we've got WWE wrestlers who are clearly misclassified as independent contractors being treated as employees not represented by a union you combine them under one one uh, umbrella Th- does that not paint a, a bigger 
government target on, on their back, maybe from, from an LRB or an, any other government organization for investigation or something like that? Yeah, My I cynical think sense is no, but it, 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 you would think so. I mean, right. You'd think so, but you know, it's, it's a weird, it's a really weird environment right now with the NLRB. Um, they, they've shifted more pro union, but they're still not anywhere near, you know, what they were back in the sixties, seventies. And those ramifications too, for things like as a consultant, right? A lot of the work I do, um, I, I am a independent contractor in my day job. And, you know, have my own business, that type of thing. But I've seen over and over throughout my career in the tech world, especially where people are brought on as contractors and they're basically employees. Like, I mean, by every definition, they have a boss, they have to do things at a certain time, things that you would imagine would classify them as an employee, but yet they're taken as an independent contractor. I think part of the reason the government is hesitant to go too far down that path, despite you know, some efforts to is if you, you know, you saw it with the, um, the Uber, you know, uh, issue, right. Where they were, they were trying to be classified as employees. And basically Uber was like, well, we're just not going to hire anybody from California if you do that, or we're going to move from these particular areas. And it got such backlash and shot down because so much of the American economy right now is gig economy that if you went too far down that path, it would affect all facets of what we're currently in. So it paints a bigger target in some ways, but I don't think it's going to actually lead to any government action besides maybe, you know, the occasional uh, new rule that, that favors those employees or what should be employees rather. I'd be curious what your thought is on the WWE. Of course they, they left their pay-per-view model to go to streaming and now they are on Peacock do you think it's an impossibility that they could reverse course and follow more so with, with a streamer that has a paid component to their big shows? Or do you feel it's once you put this product out for a, a certain price point, it's very hard to go back to a pay-per-view model that the UFC has always maintained as they introduced their own streaming service? No, I, I think it's it's not an impossibility at all. Um, honestly, my gut tells me it's more of a probability in some ways, uh, just because when you look at what the UFC has done, right, um, they've been able to increase their pay-per-view price uh, by a, a ridiculous amount, over 30% in mm. three years. And despite buys being lower than what they used to be because of that, they're, they're still making a significant amount of revenue. I would imagine, you know, the end goal here is to sell media rights for both WWE and ESPN as a package deal one day, even though they can't quite line up right now. Right. But I, I mean, I would not say it's beyond the realm of possibility that if they're currently pitching uh, where SmackDown do, goes, I know Disney is reportedly in talks about that, right. They could certainly say something around, around, Hey, you get SmackDown. And then when UFC rights come up, you can kind of put this together. Um, I can't imagine that whoever purchases those rights won't, want to move to a pay-per-view model, especially after seeing the success that the UFC has tended to have. Um, we don't know the exact numbers, but we know that for many shows, right, they are getting a fair amount of money and they're still, you know, we've had, you know, 400,000 
plus buys on multiple events in the past year, despite the price increases. And I can't imagine too, as much as it would make the fan base mad in WWE that, you know, people are going to not pay for WrestleMania, right. Or, or the big shows, at least, I don't know that they'll do, I don't know that they'll do every show, right. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like fast lane or, or payback. But I mean, for the big four, you got to imagine they're at least thinking about bringing pay-per-view back. And the Peacock deal will expire, I think somewhere around March 20, 26. So I guess it's it's plausible that they could deal the ESPN plus rights or deal deal UFC along with the, the rights that are currently held by Peacock. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. They they could easily do that. And I can't imagine again, they're not bringing that up in discussions once discussions start. I know UFC is free to uh, discuss rights at the end of the year. So I think January 1st is their year-long negotiating period. So I, I Cannot imagine that's not being talked about. My last thing for you, Patrick, is just looking at the very interesting personalities that are at the helm of this company. I mean, do you see like there's a lot of egos in this room to manage or do you essentially see them essentially operating in their islands? There will be the WWE side, the UFC side, and then you'll have your intermediaries, but the companies will largely just be moving on in the same way they are. But you will see those synergies. Like how do you expect the the management handling to be going? That's a great question. Um, I mean, again, because a lot of these synergies are going to be on the back office side, it it's still going to, you're going to have the products look mo- mostly the same on the outside, but in terms of who's reporting to who um, a lot of the logistical aspects of things and, and setting up, uh, you know, Doing the producing, basically, I, I think you're going to end up having, um, you have to have one or two intermediaries there that are big up that will probably take over, you know, and kind of be like a head of operations type would be my guess. I don't know exactly who that would be, um, but I, I can't imagine, you know, them not having a lot of change and, you know, cuts on the back end. Uh, I, I believe, you know, uh, UFC has 490 employees around there. There's and so I know, uh, I was asking earlier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for, and, and WWE doesn't have quite double that, but they have, you know, well over uh, 800 was their last uh, annual report. Right. So I'm sure WWE will take the brunt of the cuts, but UFC will probably have some too. And they'll have to restructure operations where you, you got to think for a lot of production, especially if they are able to do events in the same place at the same time, you're going to have the same teams running, you know, a lot of, of the camera work, the back-to-back um, setup and, and stagehands, all that stuff, security. So that's going to be where th- there's a lot of change. But again, I don't think we're going to see that as much. Uh, from what you may eventually start to see production crossover where suddenly some things in WWE and UFC look similar, like production angles and, and various uh promos, things like that. But for the most part, it's it's going to be islands that separate. Yeah, there was a hint about that in the Bill Simmons interview that Nick Khan did about something about production announcements coming soon that they would be cooperating with, I guess. Um, my, my impression is that Dana White gets a lot of deference when it comes to running UFC. And obviously, Ari Emanuel and Mark Shapiro are running a lot of businesses when it comes to Endeavor. Um, I think a lot of wrestling fans are wondering if 
is Ari Emanuel basically going to run WWE or how much delegation will Nick Khan and, and Paul Levesque really have? Or they're like, I guess, are there instances in which Ari has been really hands-on involved with something in UFC that might, you know, carry over to, to how he'll affect WWE? I mean, there have been a couple of instances where Ari has gotten involved, but they've generally been, you know, um, very extenuating circumstances. I mean, I know when COVID happened and Dana was, I'm going to, you know, have have a show at the Tashi Palace. I don't care. And you had the Florida governor get involved. Like Ari had to step in at that point and say, look, I'm getting calls from Bob Iger. We, we've got to not, you know, do this. Um, that's certainly an instance where Ari's involved. But for the most part, I expect Ari to let Nick Khan run WWE um, with, with Vince McMahon. I'm sure having a fair amount of of input as well. And then Ari letting Dana do his thing. He'll he'll occasionally bring in or have the oddball suggestion, but it, it's very rare from what I've seen and heard for Ari to get involved in day-to-day stuff. He's he's much more focused on Endeavor's grand vision, building that ecosystem he wants to make Endeavor this, you know, synergistic powerhouse. He's he's a deal hungry guy. He's gonna be out selling, looking to get sponsorships, looking to up the VIP experiences. I expect WWE will start to see some of those, similar to what UFC has right now, where you can get the VIP packages. Um, this is I, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, the on-location stuff. I imagine that on-location will take over uh, WWE's type VIP experiences, and that will, you know, merge into one too. But uh, I mean, uh, Ari's much more a big picture guy. He he is very rarely intervened in the ufc and when it has it's usually because of something ridiculous uh you know <laughs> something way out there well patrick let uh let everyone know where people can go catch uh more of your uh, your great work it was uh it was awesome to have you on the show today yeah no thank you um you can find me at uh my twitter handle which i accidentally put in instead of my name so <laughs> at all day oj at the bottom here uh you can find me at the fight podcast on sure dog um and you know We'll hope hoping to do some some other things here and there, but don't have anything set in stone yet. But uh, yeah, you can find me at both of those places. And um, thanks so much for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. I'm thanks sure we'll call on you on the future as we uh, try to make sense of the new the new TKO world that that exists. But thanks very much, Patrick. Thanks, guys. All right, that was uh, Patrick OJ joining us to uh, discuss, and you know, it, it got my my like my brain. Uh, thinking into all of this like you, you, we're talking about a guy in Vince McMahon that for 40 years has not had to answer to anybody like yes he's had a, a board of directors but as we saw at the end of 2022 um, that had its limits for sure I mean there will come that time that you know, there will be ultimately some decision to be made and Vince McMahon may be overruled by an Ari Emanuel these I bring up like these personalities that these are sort of individuals that have operated with that that level of autonomy and you are functioning now in in a greater organism that is this company yeah and i know there's questions we we were discussing a certain uh a certain article in the the governance agreement or something like that that um spells out how vince has power over choosing certain members of the board of directors and we need a lawyer truly to interpret it. But my reading is that at a minimum, he's going to be able to choose the board of directors through the end of 2025. If he were to 
hypothetically, uh, draw down his stock to about a quarter of what it is now, um, then he would, I think, no longer be the executive chairman. But, you know, I, I don't necessarily see him uh, getting rid of any of his stock anytime soon. Um, but I would, I would think that his employment agreement allows for him to be terminated with cause if, if it could be found that he did something terrible. <laughs> but uh, I expect him to be the executive chairman for the foreseeable future. What if, what if he showed up backstage and he put someone in a front guillotine? Um, maybe if he did it twice. Okay. We have a couple of uh, super chats here, including from the great Russell ticks. Tonight's dynamite will rank among the lowest attended TV events of 2023 so far with the lowest being collision in Regina, Saskatchewan, uh, citing the number of 2,474 concerns. Yeah. I mean, so where, where are they tonight? They are in Cincinnati tonight at the heritage bank arena in uh, Cincinnati, as I mentioned. Uh, so this is John Moxley's hometown and I guess right. Renee Paquette's hometown now as well. Um, th- the advance was not great for this. They were under 2000 up until a couple of days ago. They've passed. I think they're, uh, yeah. So they moved some tickets, but overall, I mean, if this was a, a one off and we were still riding like a much higher trend overall, you call it an aberration. It's not an aberration when we are looking at the domestic numbers for AEW that across the board, um, you know, Arthur Ashe Stadium, they're at around 6,300 tickets out. That's going to be well, well below the last two uh, trips to uh, Arthur Ashe Stadium. You have really the only one that has stood out to me as a positive sign is full gear. And that's not till November at the Kia Forum. But regardless, a lot of these shows like it's there's a softness in their in their U.S. market business. For sure. And it's sort of ironic that it's coming after uh, a record attendance uh, at, at Wembley Stadium. Um, but let's see here. If if we look at, I think I have an image here that I can share, just looking at the, the trends of um, AW Dynamite tickets distributed courtesy of um, WrestleTix uh, over the, the months going back to the return uh, to touring from the pandemic. And they were averaging, I think this is August, around 5,000. It's, it's definitely... This is a this is a bumpy line, but it's it's you know if you drew a straight line uh, across it, a linear line, it's it's down and to the right. Um, it's doing on the level of like what W house shows are doing now. Um, but yeah, there's buy one get one free tickets available for Arthur Ashe. Uh, I tweeted yesterday. A so, very aggressive push on television too for there, um, for, for that we, show in particular. They're right, right now doing like half of what they did last year. Not even the bigger attendance the year before that, where they, I think they did like nineteen thousand there. Yeah, I want to say like they they hit twenty for the for the first year there. I mean, it was like that was a tremendous tremendous success uh, for them. B- both years, really. Um, this is the year that it has uh, certainly uh, softened, and I think you just look at the, it's the overall appeal of the product as as a whole. Um, you know, the novelty of AEW, the where the perceived level of stars are at, whatever your reasoning, it's probably multi pronged, but that. I mean, there's a lot of these shows that are coming up over the next month that have not even hit 2000 yet. So it's uh, it's definitely alarming and something they should be paying attention to. And I mean, do you look at any of it as just there's been a speed up in terms of the the addition of collision now that there are you know multiple events you're doing? I, I look at it as just it, it's a larger popularity issue rather than uh, two shows per, per week, because I mean, that that's something that has been, you know, WWE has had their ups and downs as well, and they're. They are not hurt by doing a Monday Friday combo. Yeah, I mean year over year, 
attendances are down for AEW. They're not to such a low degree that you're like, oh, this company is gonna gonna go out of business soon. But attendances are down. TV ratings are down. Um, some of that was due in earlier this year due to the absence of Punk, and Punk came back for about two and a half months, and maybe he helps things a little bit. It's all kind of noisy because of the addition of Collision, but um, it's not his his absence is not going to help. And, and I think to a small extent. Um, all of the drama doesn't help their brand either. Um, but I don't think they're in like a, you know, they're certainly not in an irrecoverably terrible place. But this is, you know, this is all the novelty sort of settling and washing away and seeing what what drawing power does this brand and the set of stars who are in it really have. We also have a, uh, a super chat here from Andy who asks, is the latest raw rating enough of a worry for Vince McMahon to jump back into creative? Any chance he's ousted and put in an emeritus position post merger? Um, we should, we should, uh, emeritus position. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, so this past Monday, um, big game, I understand with the Buffalo Bills and oh the New God. York Jets where uh, Aaron Rodgers is gone, uh, for the season. And this ended up drawing, uh, 22.6 million viewers across ABC, ESPN, ESPN2, and uh, ESPN Deportes, and le- left Raw with 1,353,000 viewers. And um, whenever it's my my reaction, when uh, I see this number from Brandon, um, this was one of those, did he make a mistake? How is it that low? <laughs> this was outside of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the best of show at the end of last yeah. year. This would have been the lowest the least watched raw in history this past Monday. So for people watching in video all the way in the, in the bottom right corner, you see that gray dot. That's the best of episode on December 26th last year where it wasn't new content. It was just, you know, a, a compilation of things that happened over the year. Uh, and that is the least watched episode of Monday night raw ever. So that's kind of a, an anomaly, right? Cause it wasn't new content, wasn't live, all that. And so excluding that, this was the least watched raw ever, both in the demo and total viewership. Um, in the demo, it looks the year over year chart that we're looking at doesn't look as bad, but this, this was down 19% from last year's first game against Monday night football. And, and this year, I mean, maybe it was a bigger game when we had, you know, sort of a big news story and Aaron Rodgers, uh, apparently tearing his, his uh, Achilles tendon being done for the season after that four mean, snaps. Does that mean his contract is frozen and the Jets get to tack that on at the end of the contract? That's how sports work, right? Well, well, when you have an NFL Players Association, I'm sure they have something to say about that. Um, oh. <laughs> but <Go on>. uh, <laughs> uh, in, in other news, the Bills imploding right there before the largest audience in Monday Night Football, uh, at least since 2000 or something. But um, it's something to watch. I mean, Raw has had mostly a good year. It's been mostly year-over-year increases to a slight degree. Um, it's not been as good of a story as SmackDown year-over-year. Um, but you know, since the, the middle of the summer or so, Raw has been down year over year and, uh, see how it goes from here. I, I guess we are c- comparing now, you know, the Paul Levesque time of last year to, to now where it's whatever it is, it's Paul Levesque and a remote Vince McMahon. Um, so we're, we're, we're in year over year comparisons with the post Vince era, you might say. Yeah. And worth noting that, um, Dave Meltzer had reported on Monday that Vince McMahon is back from his, uh, his medical leave. And we all saw him Tuesday all over the, uh, the New York stock exchange and such and suggesting that, you know, he's, he is back and whatever back means, uh, means he has a repaired back, but in the, uh, figurative sense, how involved versus, uh, months ago is Vince McMahon. I think, you know, obviously he is 
going to be inputting these working out again already. Probably, um, you know, you got to test the back out. Once you have major back surgery, what's the point if you're not going to right. push it to the limit? So maybe he's going to be doing a coffin drop in the in the next couple of weeks to a uh, one up Darby. Yeah. Um, next one we have here is from John Thomas. Would not a UFC contract be similar to a boxer signing with a promoter for a five fight deal? Boxers have been considered independent contractors. Same with UFC. Um, there's big differences between boxing because boxing has the Muhammad Ali Act, and that prevents. Um, fighters from essentially being beholden to one promoter. The UFC contracts are extremely restrictive because of the fact that you can sign a a deal with with the UFC and you could sign a 10 fight deal with them. They have the power to release you after one fight. They can they can do that. It is completely in the control of the UFC. There are also many rollover clauses. There's the champions clause, which if you're not familiar with, if Brandon had a eight fight deal and in fight number six, Brandon wins the, I'm going to guess, the welterweight championship of the world. Would that be your, your weight class? Probably, what is that, 175? 170. 170? Yeah, I'm, I'm under that. I'm under that for sure. Well, um, so then as long as you keep winning, doesn't matter if those eight fights are up, you keep winning, it just rolls over. You are not going to be in a position where you can just leave uh, with my championship. Um, now, when the fighter suit was launched they did start to change some of the language and this allowed francis and ganu to have a sunset clause but it sounds like that language has now been removed and they're even more restrictive in the sense that you sign a ufc contract you are giving up your your option to ever file a class action lawsuit against the company so in a nutshell a ufc deal is much much more restrictive than you have uh, for, for a boxer's a contract and that's sort of what is at odds here is that Yes, the PFL is receiving funding and can throw a lot of money at, but you can only throw so much money if these fighters are legal and free to go after. And that's why the antitrust suit, it's sort of going to the heart of the matter of trying to adjust these contracts and, and change the, the ability. Like if you saw the Muhammad Ali Act applied to mixed martial arts, it would be a game changer for fighters' rights. And on the other side of it, it would make it a lot more difficult for fans that would some like the idea that the UFC has this monopoly on all the best fighters. You can put some of the biggest fights together. They're not scattered around all these different promoters and there are not bids for fights and all these uh championships across different sanctioning bodies. Um, but you probably have a much clearer path towards just financial freedom, much less just contractual freedom uh, as, as well from all of these. So it's a, it's a very complicated mess, but one that um, it has moved quicker. It has moved deeper than I thought it would with this antitrust suit. And, and, you know, just to reiterate what we've said in the past, you know, I've probably said on, on WrestleNomics and we talked about when we had, um, when we had Lucas Middlebrook on um, what, what determines whether someone should be legally classified as an employee or a contractor is not necessarily the exclusivity of the deal, but a number of control factors, they call them, which have to do with how, how much is your employer instructing you, training you? Um, do they tell you when and where to be? Uh, do they provide materials for you to work with? Um, and things like that to, if you, if you just Google, you know, IRS risk factors, employee contractor or something like that, you'll find uh, a number of factors that you're supposed to think about to say, okay, is this an employee or a contractor? And, and if the preponderance of them say, yeah, this is an employee, but the person is a contractor, then they're probably misclassified. And, and in the case of W wrestlers and in the case of 
um, AEW wrestlers. Uh, I, I think they're both clearly misclassified. Uh, other, the other key number from the weekend was AEW Collision. They were up 38% this week with 476,000 viewers and a 0.15 in the 18 to 49 demo. No WWE premium live event to go against, but all four major networks had college football, as did ESPN, which had the Texas Alabama game that uh, Brandon was watching with great interest and not proved that a WWE event much more detrimental than, than college football. But do you see this in line with what should be expected of collision during college football season on a non WWE weekend. And it, and is a point one five, is that something to be uh, celebrated or something that is disappointing? It's definitely better than a, what is a point 11 that it did against payback yeah. and, um, and college football. Um, I think this is a, a good impression of where it's going to be. That's pretty good. Um, it ranked, I think you, you had the number 11. It was uh, like 14th on cable, but third in its time slot. It was only behind the, right. I think it was the, the airing of Texas, Alabama. And I think there was a simulcast of the game uh, as well. So, I mean, in its time slot, third, like that's, that's a good ranking for, for sure. And, and what I, would another airing of Empire Strikes Back do in this time slot or uh, Iron Man? Uh, probably not a 0.15. Um, so, I think that's pretty good, but it does tell you how much the PLEs are going to hurt them going forward. Um, even if it's a, you know, a B, B pay-per-view, a BPLE like a uh, payback was and like fast lane probably will be. It'll it's be interesting bit- what the NXT show does in a few weeks, because that's on a Saturday night on September 30th. And right. you would think that's even a step below a payback, but nonetheless, payback or NXT has been. On the upswing over the last couple of months, there's going to be several main roster performers on that show, and we'll get a sense of what what does an NXT event have, uh, because we've not, I believe, seen an NXT show go against Collision. No, definitely not. Yeah, it'll. I, I imagine it'll still take some something of a bite. I mean, obviously, we know that NXT and Time it went head to head, but that was when both were on traditional TV, and this is not something that's on traditional TV. So, maybe to to less of an extent. And, and less of an extent than a main roster pay-per-view, but it's probably still something. I bet you see a, at least a few points lower uh, in 1849 rating. And it will probably be a very big hit that Collision takes on January the 27th of 2024 when the Royal Rumble takes place from Tropicana Field in St. Petersburg, Florida, as they announced on Wednesday is where it is going to be. However, and Brandon was reporting on this uh, a number of months back when you uh, tracked down the, uh, I guess, the, the city council. Or, the Orlando. Or this was Orlando that was going to bid $850,000 to bring the Royal Rumble to Orlando. Instead, it's going to uh, nearby uh, the Tampa area and, yeah. and not Orlando. So they will do Tropicana Field on the Saturday for the Rumble and then the Amelie Arena in Tampa for Raw on Monday. And you would yeah. think that they... What that they got a better offer to go to a different part of the state? I would think so. If if not purely money value, then some some sort of offer of value beyond what the uh, the local government in Orlando was authorized to bid. Um, so I mean, that's you think about. We know what backlash was. That was one point five million plus another three hundred thousand. Um, the Cardiff show was something near three million for a stadium show. Um, this is. A stadium show and, and another event raw they're going to do in tampa as well so i would think yeah pr- probably takes more than 150 to to attract royal rumble um did i see do you have the press release in front of you i think i saw the words tampa sports authority in there, there was, as 
Yeah, there was the Tampa Bay Sports Authority. There was Visit St. Pete Clearwater and the Tampa Bay Rays baseball team were kind of the three groups that were sort of in conjunction with WWE presenting these events. Right. So that that's a Tampa Sports Authority is a government organization that you can make, uh, as we found out uh, when WrestleMania was at Raymond James Stadium. That's a that's a, a public entity that you can make a um, records request to. And the final uh, note here I want to bring up was UFC 295 on November the 11th. So the reaction was people were stunned at the ticket prices for this card. This is the Madison Square Garden event that UFC is holding with John Jones against Stipe Miocic. And I look today and the cheapest seat on StubHub to get in is about 650 us i think that's the cheapest ticket and the way that they have already sold or at least distributed over 14,000 tickets according to russell ticks so they will sell out th- this event and this might threaten the ufc's all-time gate record which is an, also a madison square garden show of 17.7 million dollars which edges out uh the uh the famous wrestlemania 32 number at uh, at&t stadium by about 400,000 right and this is at an arena this is at garden not at a stadium. Um, that's the thing that we could emphasize as these companies come together, just how much more expensive the tickets are for UFC versus, um, versus WWE. Um, we see a little bit of that in the Pulse Star Day we've, we've been seeing lately where, um, it leaves in Nashville, UFC did a $2 million gate in an arena, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, I, we know AEW does a million dollar gate for, for their biggest shows. Um, and I'm sure, you know, WWE, I'm not sure if the recent pay-per-views have done 2 million, but um, Money in the Bank probably did because that was their biggest arena event ever, uh, not adjusted for inflation. But moral of the story, the the live events per event are just so much more lucrative for UFC than for WWE. Um, and you, you think about the, I guess the clientele that, that either of those events attract and you see, you know, celebrities and stuff like that. Um, and in, in, at UFC shows, and it's not like, Somebody's there just to promote their their thing, but that they're you know they're there because that's what they want to do, I guess. Yeah, um, you 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 may go to a UFC event and you could run into Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump. Does Ron DeSantis go to to UFC shows? Ron DeSantis was at one of the shows I want to really? say in uh, Miami for the last the last Miami card. I believe he was there. Did he know Disney was involved with the broadcast? Oh, that's that's very interesting. Yes, I, I don't know if he was aware of uh, such a thing. Wow, uh, but there you go. NXT uh, number? I don't have the NXT number as it as it, as it dropped. This it was uh, dropped. for Becky Lynch and Tiffany Stratton. So this could have this been. Is, I, I don't know if I have it originally up, but the, but from Sports TV Ratings has reported that it was point two six in the demo. Wow, that would be among that, that chat. Their biggest this year have been they've done several point two threes, so a point two six like shatters that. That that is one of their biggest numbers ever, I would say for NXT. Eight hundred and fifty thousand viewers total. Wow, that's a that is a very strong number for uh, Becky Lynch. I'm just looking up here the the very first set of NXT shows were um, the the unopposed weeks before Dynamite started. Point four three, point three two, point three two. And then down to a point two two once uh once dynamite launched against them. So you're probably looking at only the first three weeks of existence that NXT has done a larger number than this week. So yeah, this this is from Robert Seedman's uh uh Substack, who you may know as Sports TV Ratings on Twitter. Um, and I, I I can't independently confirm this yet, but that yeah that that's a huge rating for NXT. Okay, well there you go, Brandon Thurston here, right on top of things. 
Um, are you going to be watching this? This is the real last uh, topic. Are you going to be checking out this wrestler series that just launched today on Netflix? No. Have you heard uh, of this? No, but, but this is about OVW. This right. is OVW, which is, it's, it's interesting. It's like, this is like, it's right on the main page of Netflix. Is it? It's not as though wow. this is just like throwing like Lucha Underground was up there a few years ago. And you'd have to dig to find it. But, but um, is, is this like an algorithm? Cause they know that you're a wrestling fan. Could be, it could be as well, but it was, it was under like the new releases and, and, and mm. such, but okay. people can, I, I haven't seen any of it. I don't know if I'll get around to watching this, but nonetheless, it's, I don't know if it's going to point a lot of people. I don't know how many wrestling fans would be aware that OVW even has weekly television. So I don't know if this is going to uh, grow the OVW audience, but nonetheless, it's a, a prime spot for them. Mm-hmm. And the return of Al Snow to reality television <laughs> after all these years. So, some people who are affiliated with OVW will, will tell you that OVW is the third most watched wrestling show in the U.S. Okay. That's, um, that's what they say. That's, that's what they say. Well, ahead of women of wrestling? I doubt it. <laughs> Brandon, what is coming up um, in the in the days uh, to come over at WrestleNomics? Uh, we'll have we have TV ratings reports all week, uh, core hour reports. Um, we'll have a podcast as always Sunday, eleven a.m. with Jesse Collings, Chris Gola, and myself. I'm sure we'll be talking more about TKO and whatever we learn uh, between now and then. I want some uh, Aaron Rodgers reaction from uh, from Jesse. We'll be uh, and Gallo. There'll, there'll be some Bills reaction from the, the, the Bills imploding before a record audience on Monday night. Um, but yes, um, look, look for that. And um, there were uh, the monthly reports are all out there on patreon.com slash WrestleNomics as well. All right, go check that out. I'm back tonight with uh waiting. We will be up for rewinded dynamite coming off the show tonight in Cincinnati. And um, if you're attending the show, you can call in. We'll, we'll get all uh, 2,438 of you. If you, uh, if you choose to call in after the show, that's, that's actually a complete lie. We're, we're not taking any calls tonight. So, uh, disregard, but you can call in on Friday night, postwrestlingcafe.com for rewind to SmackDown. And we're going to watch impact 1000. Did you watch impact one in October of 2005? Yes, I did. I definitely did. I remember where I was when, um, it was a big moment. It was 2005. Saturday night, 11 PM on spike. Yes. Um, I was moved because it was like, oh my God, it's another wrestling company on television after four years of, of none of that other than WWE. And man, a one hour wrestling program. I mean, could, could we, could we so hope for such a thing in 2023 and beyond? I mean, how do they fit the angles in? How do they do all the, all the, the matches and get everybody in? Lost opportunity. They should have started off with like an all day marathon of impact right from the beginning and, and set the course for the years to come. That's going to wrap it up. A uh, big thanks to Patrick OJ for joining us. We will be back next week. You can catch us here every Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Follow him at Brandon Thurston. And if you do, you will sound so much more intelligent in your wrestling discourse with your friends and colleagues. And uh, that is it for us. For Brandon, I am John Pollock. And thank you for tuning in to Pollock and Thurston. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.